Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from Stats Newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca is recording from Stats San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, May 24th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Public health officials have launched a historic vaccination campaign to fight a worrisome Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Stat reporter Helen Branswell joins us to talk about her latest reporting on the crisis. 23andMe is running a promotion encouraging soccer fans to turn to their own ancestral origins to pick which national team to root for in the World Cup. It all got really weird really fast. We'll discuss what it says about the consumer genetic testing business. Biotech analyst Brian Scorney has an interesting idea for how the U.S. can lower domestic drug prices without killing pharmaceutical products. Adam got on the phone with him to find out more. And finally, we'll do another lightning round covering short and sweet topics like pillable sunscreen, and that time President Trump retweeted one of Damien's stories. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. Let's start with some sobering news. Health officials are warning the latest outbreak of Ebola in Central Africa is a, quote, game changer. The deadly virus Ebola is back in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and it's the most concerning outbreak since the epidemic that killed 11,000 people in Western Africa between 2013 and 2016. That outbreak is also an opportunity to test a vaccine that has the potential to change the way public health officials respond to future outbreaks. Health officials have just begun a campaign to try to vaccinate anyone in Congo who has been in contact with a case to prevent continuing spread of the virus. Stat infectious disease reporter Helen Branswell has been covering this story closely. She's here to break down what's happened so far, what's next, and what we might learn. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for starters, Helen, what is the latest on the current Ebola situation? The outbreak is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which has had more Ebola outbreaks than any other country. Often in the Congo, what happens is that the outbreak is somewhere that's really remote. And so that sort of protects the world because it makes it hard for responders to get in, but it also makes it hard for people who are sick to get out. This one, though, is in a part of the Congo that is both very remote and attached to major waterways, which people are likening to sort of super highways or interstates. The epicenter is on a lake that leads into the Congo River. There are cases in a large city that is also on the Congo River, and upriver from there is the capital of the Central African Republic. Downriver is Kinshasa, the capital of DRC, and Brazzaville, the capital of Congo Brazzaville. Those three cities have in the order of about 15 or 16 million people living in them. So uh, this is a dangerous situation. Helen, you've written about how this latest Ebola outbreak is a crucial moment for testing the experimental Ebola vaccine developed by Merck. Tell us about this vaccine and Merck's role in all of this. All right. Well, this vaccine was originally developed at the uh, National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, Canada. It's made using animal virus called VSV that is harmless to people, and that 
virus has been engineered to carry the main protein that's on the exterior of the Ebola virus. Early testing in, in primates showed that it was very effective and produced a rapid response, but it kind of languished for years because there isn't a lot of um, interest amongst large pharmaceutical companies in developing Ebola vaccines. There is no traditional market for Ebola vaccines. So a small company called New Link Genetics had, p had picked up the license for it, but really hadn't advanced it very much. And during the 2014-15 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, there was a lot of renewed interest in this and it was actually tested it was the only one of the vaccines that were tested in West Africa that came out of that outbreak with some phase three data that showed that it was highly effective. And so Merck um, had stepped in during the 2014-15 outbreak to try to advance the vaccine because Newlink was not able to do so. And uh, they continue to develop it and it's going to be used. In fact, the, the vaccination program started there on Monday. They're doing what's called ring vaccination, which means they are vaccinating or offering vaccine to people who have been are contacts of cases and then the contacts of the contacts. The idea is to sort of throw up a wall past which the virus can't travel. Also, they're going to be uh, vaccinating healthcare workers who are really at great risk during Ebola outbreaks. And so as you mentioned, there was promising clinical data on this vaccine from the last outbreak, but it hasn't actually been approved by any sort of global authority. So are there still questions remaining about its efficacy as being able to protect people from Ebola? You know, the science on it, such as it is, looks really good, solid. The clinical trial in Guinea, it showed 100% efficacy, but in the real world, nothing works 100%. The issue for this vaccine is probably not so much how well it works, but whether or not people will agree to take it. There are lots of communications challenges around using a vaccine in an outbreak, especially in a part of the world where people might think Ebola is magic, black magic, uh, where people might be concerned about um, why some people are being vaccinated and others are not. Uh, you know, this vaccine mounts a quick response, but if you're already incubating Ebola, it may not protect you. And then, you know, there's the potential in an outbreak setting always that people start to think the vaccine causes the disease as opposed to preventing the disease. And if rumors of that sort start, then you, you could get into a real problem. Helen, you raised some really troubling challenges around patient receptivity to the vaccine. What are some of the hardest logistical parts about the vaccination campaign that's getting underway? Well, this vaccine has to be kept really cold. It must be stored at minus 60 to minus 80 degrees Celsius. So, you know, we're talking about a part of the world that doesn't necessarily have electricity everywhere. As a consequence, they've had to establish what they call the cold chain, the network of freezers so that they can move the vaccine from Geneva to Kinshasa and keep it at the appropriate temperature. And then from Kinshasa to Bandaka, the provincial capital. And, uh, and from there, if they're taking it out to the field, they use something called Arctic freezers that can keep it cold enough. But establishing that cold chain has been really crucial to being able to use this in the field. And so Helen, finally, what are you going to be watching most closely for in the coming days as this gets underway? The case count in a place called Wangata, which is really just a part of the city of Bandaka, 
is what I'm really watching. That city has over a million people in it. And if this virus takes off there, you know, the world has a really big problem on its hands. Helen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. a lot on this podcast about the topic of consumer genomics companies struggling to come to terms with the implicit seriousness of their business. The latest case in point comes from 23andMe and its bizarre campaign called Root for Your Roots, which is a gimmick to tell you which national team you should support in the World Cup. But we're all connected to a World Cup nation through our DNA. So this summer, Root for Your Roots. Watch the FIFA World Cup on Fox and let Fox broadcast sponsor 23andMe help you find your team. Let's walk through how the campaign works. The short explanation is that it's a dumb promo to sell spit kits to soccer fans. The company looks at your ancestry data and then churns out this kind of social media friendly map graphic. It tells you to root for say Croatia because your maternal line has ancient roots in Southern Europe. The precise language they use is quote, We've ranked your results based on the strength of your DNA's connection to each country, end quote. 23andMe's promotion is aimed basically at two different types of people. Group one is existing customers like Damien, who've already paid for an ancestry report, but might see the World Cup promo as, say, an added benefit, or even better, they might be induced to tweet about it and give 23andMe free publicity. The second group is people like Adam, who haven't paid up yet, but could maybe be persuaded to become a customer if they really, really want to know which soccer team to root for. And so as this campaign rolled out, what did the internet make of it? So the internet was not impressed, to put it lightly. The oft-quoted bioethicist Art Kaplan wrote an absolutely scathing op-ed on the topic, saying the company is, quote, using genetics to sponsor racism. And I thought Art Kaplan made some pretty valid points in, in that op-ed. Uh, he had pointed out in particular that soccer has a huge problem when it comes to fans uh, taunting athletes who are black or minority. Uh, he also made a, a good point, which was, you know, what genetic difference is it exactly that we are going to be rooting for between teams? Would, would it be, say, the immune system difference between Egypt and Switzerland? It's pretty ridiculous if you think about it. And Barry Pacheski, who's an editor at Deadspin, tweeted about his results, which encouraged him to root for the national teams of Poland, Russia, Iran, and Croatia, and said he'd, quote, pass on rooting for the teams with the skinhead fan bases. And on a similar note, Matt Zeitlin, formerly of BuzzFeed, tweeted, I joked that obviously no Jewish person was involved in this 23andMe campaign, and it's way more tone deaf than I ever could have imagined. All right, so Damien, you, you actually tried this out for yourself, right? What, what happened? I did. So I've been a 23andMe customer since back in 2013 when they were pretending the FDA didn't exist. So it was just a matter of clicking one button to get my results. And I wouldn't say that what I saw was like capital O offensive, but what it told me was that my genetic ancestry is most closely related to Mexico, which I already knew. But the little Twitter card they asked me to share said, hey, you're rooting for Mexico. Si se puede. And like, again, I'm not actually offended, but si se puede is a calling card of the United Farm Workers Association, which is a Southern California United States movement based on Mexican-Americans, Si Se Puede is not a chant from the autonomous nation of Mexico. So just a cursory Google search would have learned that you were sort of not even being culturally appropriative, but just being culturally tone deaf, I guess, to borrow Matt's phrasing. Let's talk about the takeaway of all of this. 
Of course, this isn't the first time we've seen these consumer genetic testing companies underestimate how serious what they're really doing is. Right. So as we saw from the Golden State Killer case, where the police use ancestry data to triangulate a serial killer, and that obviously has huge implications for, for law enforcement, but also for consumer privacy if you're a customer of one of these companies. And, you know, another example of how serious uh, the genetic information can be, you know, companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, where people are, are learning sort of shocking, life-changing family secrets for the first time. We've seen the stories about people finding out from 23andMe that their, their dad wasn't their real father or, or they had siblings that they'd, they'd never met. Another example that jumps to mind is our stat colleague, Eric Boodman, has written about how 23andMe is being used in alt-right communities as a demonstrator of white cleanliness. And I think it's fair to assume that bolstering someone's credibility on an Aryan message board is not what Ann Wojcicki thought 23andMe would be used for when she got into this business. Let's end this on a sports note. Okay. Damien, who are you rooting for in the World Cup? Well, Mexico is my fallback team because the nation in which I was born is no longer good at the sport that I enjoy watching. So I guess I'm going for them, but acknowledging that they will not go far, Belgium. Rebecca, who are you rooting for? Guys, I can't even pretend that I watch soccer at all. I'm sorry. Oh, well, all right. I'm rooting for Iceland. Well, you got to get that 23andMe thing. And I don't have, a, I don't have an ounce of uh, Icelandic DNA in my body, but I'm rooting for Iceland. When President Trump made his big drug pricing speech in the Rose Garden on May 11th, among his many targets were foreign countries. He called them freeloaders that pay less for American-made drugs than patients back home. In some cases, medicine that costs a few dollars in a foreign country costs hundreds of dollars in America for the same pill, with the same ingredients, in the same package, made in the same plant, and that is unacceptable. To address what he sees as freeloaders, Trump has instructed his trade negotiators to include drug pricing in future trade talks with foreign countries, Europe in particular. The art of the deal will force foreign countries to pay more for American drugs so that patients at home can pay less, or at least that's what Trump believes. There aren't many people outside the White House who believe that this tactic will work, but there could be another more effective way of accomplishing the same goal. Adam got on the phone with Brian Scorney to talk about what that might look like. Brian is a senior biotech analyst at the Wall Street investment bank R.W. Baird. He's also one of the only sell-side analysts on Twitter, which we thank him for. You can follow him at Brian Scorney. Hey, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So under the current system, Medicare doesn't obviously set prescription drug prices. Those prices are set by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. But Medicare does receive a discount from the list price of prescription drugs. How is that discount established and how big is it? Yeah, so, so this is where the system in the U.S. starts to get really complicated because what the government pays is fractured into many different parts, right? There's Medicare, there's Medicaid, there's the VA. Even within Medicare, there's Part B and there's Part D. And, and we could spend all day just talking about how price is determined in the U.S. for each of these. But let's just say that there's a mix of forces that determine the price that a pharmaceutical company gets reimbursed for through the public system. Some do rely to some extent on utilizing buyer power like the VA, and others utilize very little leverage like Part B, which I think the, the president and Azar and, and Gottlieb have really been highlighting the last couple of weeks. And then in Europe, the system works differently, right? 
Yeah, so European countries have really centralized the pricing and reimbursement process over the last decade to to maximize their power as buyers. Um, I wouldn't say that they necessarily set the price of a drug, but they can play hardball to a much greater extent in the negotiating process. And and this has definitely led to a dynamic where prices, prices oftentimes wind up being significantly lower in European countries compared to the U.S. All right, so let's talk about the Scorny drug pricing plan. Um, How does this work, Brian? First, I'll say I'm sure I'm not the first one to think of this plan, and and the inspiration for the idea comes from other people, uh, something David Miller had written about years ago. So one of the ways the U.S. government does limit drug price without directly negotiating is through a passive mechanism allowing private payers to influence the price. So the Medicaid drug rebate program requires a rebate for drugs that are based on the price that private payers are covering the drug and that usually results in drugs covered in Medicaid coming in at a substantially lower net price than that same drug when it's reimbursed by a private health plan. So my plan would simply peg the price that CMS pays for a drug to an average of other prices. That would in, It would still include private U.S. plans, but it would also start including some major uh, EU countries um, to, to really help uh, CMS come up with a, a more appropriate pricing dynamic and, and also limit how big the discounts that European countries are getting. And so that would effectively lower the price that CMS pays for drugs? I think that it would. Um, you know, no question the single biggest buyer of drugs is the U.S. government. Companies are very conscious of what drives their current Medicaid and Medicare prices. They take a lot of precautions not to hurt the best price per unit in the U.S. because of how it affects their coverage through CMS. So once you think about how the companies deal with that when negotiating regional pricing, you know, it forces the companies to start thinking much more carefully about how the price from their counterparty in these EU countries um, can wind up affecting the price uh, of the, the U.S. government. Most of the profits that drug companies make on drugs, on products, come from the U.S. Um, and so they, for therefore, they don't really have a lot of incentive to negotiate, you know, negotiate hard in the EU, for, uh, you know, when, when it comes to drug pricing. So do you think your plan would sort of change that behavior, right? Well, that, that's, that's my belief. I think, I think most companies kind of think of the... R&D equation um, where the U.S., you know, they ultimately will be getting the coverage for whatever they invested in R&D through discovery, through development. They'll be getting the bulk of that off of the premiums that they're getting in the U.S., right? So, so once that, once those costs are, are covered, all they have to really think about is the incremental gross profit. And, and that can be, you know, really, really low relative to what the, these drugs cost uh, to incrementally manufacture, right? A drug is usually, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of times more expensive than, than what that equivalent drug is is to manufacture. So, so I think that's why in these European countries, the pharma companies, they're, they're, they're willing to go pretty low because essentially anything above COGS is still a gross profit for them, um, e- even if it doesn't kind of justify the, the R&D expenses that went into making the drug. For those of our listeners who are not up on all the vernacular, uh, COGS is cost of goods sold, right? Yep. It's basically everything that goes into manufacturing, you know, the next pill. So the Trump, you know, again, so he, you know, he's calling these European countries freeloaders because they're getting these drugs that are made in America. They're getting them at a really cheap price compared to what American patients are. So do you think that if you presented your plan to Trump in the White House or maybe down uh, in Mar-a-Lago over uh, 
uh, while playing golf or something like that. Uh, if you're lucky enough to get down there with with him, Scorny, how, how would he? How do you think he would react to this idea? Oh man, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how he would react. I mean, I think I think there's there's parts of it that are attractive to him. I think there's parts parts of it that would be unattractive. Uh, you know, you know I, I think the concept of saying, "Hey, this is what we're paying for for drugs," you know, getting real transparency. One of the things is. What, whatever price gets negotiated in the UK between a company and um, the UK health system, it's it, it, th- there's no transparency as to that price. It's a confidential price. So you know, I think I think he would very much like the dynamic of getting transparency across geographies and basically saying, hey, if we're paying this, you really have no complaint to pay something reasonably equivalent. You know, I would make the, the argument that the, the best solution here uh, to make this a seamless issue would be to actually offer that we pay some modest premium compared to what the EU geographies pay. This would make it politically, I think, very difficult for European countries uh, to generally say no to you know, life-saving drugs. I think it would be a hard argument to say, well, we're, we're just not willing to give this price to this pharmaceutical company and they're being greedy when you have the U.S. offering to pay something that is actually a premium to what the European countries uh, our pain. So listen, with all the turnover in the uh, Trump administration, you could be uh, you could be Health and Human Secret- Services Secretary next week, Scorny. So like you may be putting this plan in place. So I would I would just get ready. All right, I'm I'm, I'm eagerly waiting the call. Brian Scorny, uh, a senior biotech analyst at RW Baird. Thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. No, uh, anytime, guys. It is time for what you've been waiting for all week, another lightning round. Lightning round! So let's just start. So Right to Try is probably about to become the law of the land. That's the controversial bill that would allow sick patients easier access to unapproved medicines. I actually don't have a take on this. Adam? You don't have a take? I do. It's bad for patients. It's bad for the FDA. I think this is just a backdoor way of sort of just delegitimizing the FDA and sort of taking them out of the drug review process. And I think that's the ultimate goal of this right to try movement that's kind of started by extreme free market types. Another take worth noting, uh, Politico's Dan Diamond pointed out on the day that the House passed the bill that that might arguably have been the most successful healthcare moment of Trump's presidency so far. Damien, Trump retweeted one of your stories. It was a big day for me and I owe it all to Steve Forbes, but basically it boils down to the recently approved migraine drug from Amgen, which Wall Street expected to cost about $10,000 a year. Amgen is charging a little bit less than 7,000. So the headline I wrote, and I knew I was giving Amgen what they wanted by doing so, but sometimes that's inevitable, was that Amgen prices new drug at a 30% discount to what everyone expected. Steve Forbes, uh, the legend, tweeted that saying this Trump's drug pricing speech is already successful as evidenced by this decision that Amgen definitely came to before that speech began. Uh, and thus the president himself retweeted it. And thus that weekend did I get occasional notifications on my phone from people with accounts like MAGA Mama saying, way to go, Mr. Trump. Now you would think that a tweet from at real Donald Trump to his 52 million real followers and Russian bots would drive lots of traffic. And yet it did not. Right. We got like basically zero traffic, extra traffic on your story from the Donald Trump retweet. It turns out <laughs> robots don't click through. 
And while we're still on the topic of politics, Bob Hugan, the former CEO of Celgene, who is now trying to win a Senate seat in his home state of New Jersey, is nearing a primary that he will almost certainly win before he faces incumbent Democrat Bob Menendez in the general. On this topic, I was trolling Twitter and came across a tweet from a hematologist at the University of Iowa who described a really heartbreaking situation he'd encountered in, in clinic. He'd met with a patient who was forced to choose between Revlimid for himself or nursing care for his wife. And Revlimid, for people who don't know, is Celgene's pricey blood cancer drug, the price of which Bob Hugan raised while he presided over Celgene. Does anyone from the uh, Menendez campaign listen to this podcast? Because if they do, uh, I can smell an attack ad. Bob Hugan. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost hard to imagine how Bob Menendez, who very nearly was convicted of corruption, could find a moral high ground to take, but Bob Hugan, coming from the drug industry, has somehow delivered that onto him. Go boldly. Speaking of moral high ground or low ground, let's move on to an update on a courtroom drama we talked about last week. A former Valiant executive and the former head of a mail-order pharmacy were convicted of using a secret and fraudulent kickback agreement. A federal jury in Manhattan found the two defendants guilty on all the charges, which included wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. So I guess the only forward-looking thing is maybe that will finally put to bed all of that shadowy business that got Valiant's name dragged through the mud in the first place. And of course, Valiant has since changed its name. But you can actually get a lot more on this topic if you read our colleague Ed Silverman's story, um, which is on Stat Plus, to which you should subscribe, of course. And there's a bonus appearance from Beach Boy legend and pharmaceutical industry fan, Brian Wilson. So moving on, uh, let's talk about Grail, uh, the Illumina spin-out that's taking on the incredibly daunting challenge of developing a liquid biopsy test for cancer. Uh, the, Silicon the Silicon Valley company just raised another $300 million, bringing its total fundraising haul since 2016 to a cool $1.5 billion. So a few takeaways on this. There are a lot of Chinese investors in that syndicate, which shows, I think, their rising influence in U.S. biopharma. Another takeaway, this new round really raises some big questions about the company's plans to go public, as well as its ability to go public. Uh, Grail's rumored, of course, to be considering an IPO under new rules on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but the company wouldn't comment when I asked them about it. So we'll see how it plays out. Moving on, here's something for you as you head out for the first unofficial weekend of summer. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb would like you to know that you should not take sunscreen in a pill, which apparently is a thing. Yeah, so it turns out there's a handful of companies marketing these really dubious products that claim that if you swallow a capsule of God knows what, you will not get a sunburn. And FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb would like you to know that please, please don't buy that. And this lets me reference my favorite show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the famous rum ham episode where they, the gang goes to the beach and Charlie drinks sunscreen. Oh, oh Jesus Christ, Charlie, you're yeah. drinking sunblock. Oh, it's good, it gets you, it gets you all. Yeah, you're ingesting viscous chemicals and they're getting you hot. It doesn't, doesn't matter, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Okay. And that does it for this episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Jeff Delvisio, Matthew Orr, and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke, as always, is our executive producer. And a general reminder that we cherish your feedback. Feel free to send us along suggestions for future episodes, suggestions for guests for future episodes, which band of skinheads your genetics tells you to root for this World Cup. We read your emails, and you can send them to readoutloud at statnews.com. We'll see you next week, and don't drink sunscreen. <laughs>